Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the All Out Coach Podcast, which stimulates you to create your own momentum and which will share the moments and the lives of past, present, and future leaders. Today, I have a special guest that I'm excited about. Uh, he will help us unveil the art behind the interactions between humans in different organizations and companies. His name is Todd Dewitt. He is a PhD in organizational behavior. He's a best-selling author. He's a live and virtual global speaker, an educator, a coach. He's graduated from University of Memphis, University of Tennessee, got his business degree and PhD from Texas A&M. And he has a website called drdoit.com and a new book out called Live Hard. Todd, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you. It's great to see you and appreciate you having me on. Great. I'd like to ask you to talk about the path that led you to study organizational behavior and get your PhD in that subject first. Well, I, it, it's to be honest with you, it's kind of a study of figuring out where I did not fit before I figured out where I fit. So I started uh, after undergrad in an MBA with a couple of companies you've probably heard of. One's called, well, now it's called Accenture at the time. It was Anderson and then Ernst & Young for a small number of years doing the consulting thing. And what I figured out there inside of those big firms is that I really, really was interested in business in a lot of ways. In particular, I fell for the relationship side of the equation, watching people try to understand each other and help each other as we all move towards goals. That was fascinating to me. And I recognized quickly, we weren't really great at it. It's so central to being successful, but we weren't great at it. And I wanted to understand that more, think about that more. And about that time when this was becoming clear to me, the first few years of my career, I also recognized something else very obvious, which was that I did not fit in traditional corporate roles at all. I tend to be um, creative and loud and opinionated. I'm a change agent type of personality. I'm, I'm not contained extremely uh, well inside traditional corporate hierarchies. And that's not good or bad, by the way, that's just a reality. And it became clear to me. And so I put all these things together and realized I had a plan that maybe would allow me to cope with those realities really well, which was to go and leave industry in the classic sense and go get a PhD. So the reason I went to business school and got a PhD in studying people at work was because I'm fascinated by these topics and, and frankly, how they're so important. And yet I knew I needed something of an outsider role in studying them uh, in order for me to be a happy person and to add a lot of value. And so that's why I left corporate America and went and became a professor for a long time, uh, which lasted for about 15 years, PhD, postdoc, 10 years as a professor. Uh, and then as you well know, life is unexpected. You make a plan and then life kind of laughs at you. Uh, I was tenured, I was a dean, I was doing all those things. And then uh, the phone just started ringing and I was drawn slowly into a career that I have now, my third career, uh, speaking and writing uh, for a living and doing online courses and coaching and things of that nature. So that's how I got here. Some of your online courses I've taken myself, Todd. And I want to make it a point to let my audience know that I teach a lot of those who I mentor as well, using a lot of those pearls, particularly all elevator pitches and just branding ourselves. So uh, today it's a special opportunity for all of us uh, to have the privilege of being students and uh, sharing some insights from you, our award-winning professor, I must add also. Now, what was one lesson that was most memorable uh, for you that led you to 
change your career? Well, uh, I believe in fit, meaning we're all unique. We all have things we're good at, things we're not interested in. And I think that fit, I know uh, that fit leads to better job performance, feeling more fulfilled, a life, dare I say, that has purpose, at least uh, as we experience purpose individually. And that, that idea, which sounds lofty, I, I understand, um, is extremely appealing to me. So when I envisioned a way to be interested and involved in business, but in a way that fit me, I had to go try it, knowing I could fail, because um, getting a PhD at a real school is not an easy thing to do. And I knew I could fail, but I had to because the payoff, which I could envision, sounded amazing. And the payoff was individual fit for me, freedom compared to most jobs. Freedom is something that's kind of perceived, not real, meaning the more you love what you do, the traditional things like a structure, an office you have to report to, a boss, those things don't feel like constraints when you love what you do. They feel like a burden and constraints when you don't like what you do. So once I got a PhD and became a professor, I couldn't believe, I still can't believe I get paid to do the things that I do. I get to make a living studying things that I find interesting and helping people make better versions of themselves. They tell me, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I get paid for that. That's crazy. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm living a dream. I found an escape from uh, the cube, if you will, and I'm, I'm living a dream. Yeah, uh, you teach many different students and uh, there are uh, next generation leaders out there who want to become entrepreneurs right away. They don't want to pursue a business degree. They just start their own you know, companies. What is some advice you have to them who are somewhat impatient, let's say? I understand where impatience comes from. I have plenty of it. I can understand that. And I remember being uh, full of energy and desire in my 20s. Uh, 20s is a peculiar time where we think we know a lot and have yet to realize how little we know, which is a dangerous, beautiful thing if you think about it. Uh, so what I say to you is the more you take risks to go find areas that truly do fit you, the shorter your wait will be until you're allowed to fully be you. So for example, young people come up to me all the time and they say, I, I want to be expressive and I want to look like I want to look, et cetera, et cetera. And I go, well, okay. But the first the coin of the realm, the first thing that matters in any vocation, any industry period is what are the metrics that matter to define great performance? And can I achieve those? Can I perform uh, at an above average level on those metrics? That really is a universal statement for anyone, anywhere, almost any age, especially young people. Uh, and you've got to do that. That's step one. Do that. Be an above average performer in the ways top performance is defined in your area. Do that. Put in the hours. Sweat, 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 sweat. Because when you get past that, and it might take you six months or six years, but when you get there, it's crazy how much more latitude or wiggle room that you have to be you, to speak your mind, to not agree when you don't want to agree, to look like you want to look, to chase new job ventures the way you want to chase them instead of what they tell you to do. All of that personal liberty comes after you get educated, get your first opportunity and find success with the metrics that they traditionally use. Then for the back four fifths of your career, then you start having an opportunity to be a little more specifically who you want to be as a professional. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I relate to that a lot. Uh, first of all, I, I can see how you energize a lot of people just because you captured my attention and my energy in a virtual course on LinkedIn. 
which many people in my industry or in, in any industry need to first find the time to do that and then need to be really attentive and then apply it to their life and to their business. And I've been, I'm a living testament to, to show that, that I've, I've done that. Uh, now, you know, one thing that I relate to also is that I've been in the corporate environment also for 16 years. And, you know, there are many business phrases and corporate speak and jargon that I've never used in my life. Yet I've still been somewhat valuable, I would like to uh, think, to many different startup organizations, large established organizations as well. And, and so I also teach a lot of those who I mentor that, that you have to create the value for others rather than fit yourself into the mold that others make for you. And that's what I'm hearing from what, what you've observed. So my, my question to you is, what are some characteristics that you've seen among other people, other students you may have had, who have been able to maintain their character and regardless of what organization they worked in or what environment they were in, what, what was it about them? Uh, what did they do differently? Yeah. Well, you have to have, it's a great question. You have to have uh, things that are universally valued before they uh, value things that are uniquely valued. Let me say that again. You have to have things that are universally valid, uh, valued by others before they start to value the unique things in you. Uh, which is kind of what I said a minute ago. So uh, number one's hard work that's universally valued by anyone that's going to hire you for almost anything. Um, and then, then there's this thing, you've got to find out what matters to them and deliver over some initial period of a career, because when you do that, they start to change their perception of you. You might not have changed, but their perception of you will change. So what's the difference between being viewed by someone as uniquely interesting and maybe eccentric in a good way versus strange and weird. Same person, different right. perception. And the answer is, are you giving them those universally valued things that they need? To the extent the answer is yes, then their perspective of you shifts towards the interesting, eccentric, value-added, you know, thing that, that Todd, everyone talks about me. No one says, I like Todd uh, in spite of his tattoos. No one says that. They say that guy delivers and is helpful. And oh, by the way, if you're interested, maybe you are, maybe you're not, he looks a little different, but it's a secondary thing. It matters very little because the place where I add value is what matters most. So you wanna get away with being unique. How do you maintain a sense of authenticity across your career? You've got to, number one, understand your values. And of course, make sure you're not ever found uh, to be compromising those on a regular basis, of course. But aside from that, it's hard work and can you deliver results? If you can do that while being ethical, it's amazing how much space you'll create to be as colorful, different, and unique as you want to be. I know you have many tattoos, and uh, you've been a leader who has recognized leader, and you've maintained your personality. Uh, I often uh, talk about the fact that our behavior is our number one brand. You know, that's one of my messages on All Out Coach, because it's not what we say, what we look like, what we dress like, or our background that makes us different, but it's ultimately what we do. You know, I, so I, I agree with you. Absolutely, Todd. Uh, what were some uh, turning points, pivotal moments in your life where you felt like you had developed your character, that you had gotten to know who you were? I, I'll try and give a couple examples. So I, I'm, I'm lucky, and I admit this, a lot of people struggle with finding, hey, what's my calling in life? Yeah. And I think it's a right to struggle. And I take a lot of time to help people try and think through that because it can be difficult, of course. 
Uh, number one, you don't know what it is. Number two, some people think they might know what it is, but then they're afraid to take the risks associated with achieving it and chasing it and trying it. So there's these different phases people fit in. I I've known since I was quite young that I was a, a different communicator, that people listened to me from age 11, 12. Uh, my friends would come to me when things, when they were angry, when they wanted to yell about their parents or whatever it was. Uh, I was always that person. I was that kid as a teenager who was playing informal counselor to his friends, male, female, didn't matter. Uh, I've always been that person. And then I, I decided to make that into a career in different ways and throw a lot of quality education on top of it to give me the right words to, to frame what that's all about. So uh, there's a couple people I would give huge credit for. I'll mention just two or to, in terms of big events or turning points to your question. Uh, one was my mom. I remember I was leaving uh, or thinking about leaving Ernst & Young back in the day. So I had a prestigious job, prestigious title. I was young, making a good salary, all those things that are allegedly uh, I was in a good place in the eyes of others. And I was miserable. I mean, unhappy person, knowing I was happy I could prove I could earn. I was happy I could prove I was bright and work hard. I didn't feel fit to use that word again. I didn't feel fulfilled. I didn't feel purpose, none of that. And I thought to myself, do I have to feel this way for the next 40 years? Is this it? Oh man, that's horrible. I started to envision a different path, which I'm now on. And I said, do I wanna take the risks to do that? And I remember a phone call with my mother. She's, my, both my parents are gone now. But I remember a phone call with my mother and I was emotional and she asked me like, moms do, what's wrong with you? And I became much more emotional, started crying. Uh, as I was talking to my mother, I was 20, 27 years old, maybe 27, I think. And, and I admitted to her that I felt misplaced, uh, uh, not fulfilled and worried that feeling unfulfilled uh, and, and not using my creativity or my potential was gonna be all I did for the next 30, 40 years. And I was worried about that. And I was thinking about walking away from this, this prestigious thing to take a huge risk that might blow up in my face just for the chance of finding the dream that we all talk about our own different dreams. I had my dream of something that fit better and helping people. And, and, and so she just told me, look, man, I, it took me till I was in my 50s to say to myself some basic truths about myself. You're trying to do that hardcore right now before you hit 30. Good for you for trying to be so honest. Life is, is short. Take my word for it, she said to me, a theme I've talked about before, written about, and it's, it's in Live Hard as well. Uh, and I got to tell you, you know, you should take that risk. Why wouldn't you? At the time, I was not married. I had no kids. She said, why wouldn't you? Where's the risk? I think you're blowing this out of proportion. And she helped me in one conversation, put that whole thing in perspective. And it was probably the biggest factor that made me lead uh, make the decision to get a PhD and start a new life, which worked out very, very well. And then second and final example to answer your question, yeah. years later on the back end of the professor part of my career, I had a, a good friend who was a very successful entrepreneur who had heard I had begun a side speaking career because it just happened and it developed for me. I wasn't really trying. People just started asking. And, and finally, he had an opportunity, this very successful entrepreneur friend, to come watch me give a talk. It was to a bunch of doctors and surgeons at some hospital. And I went and did the talk. My friend came with me. And after it was over, we had lunch. And this is what he said to me. He's about 20 years older. And he's a good person, great mentor, one of the few I, I felt I can just say that about. He's just great. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? I get it now. I've heard so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so talk about you as a speaker, but, but I've seen it now. I get it. You're really good at telling stories and words and emotionally grabbing people. And, and I like that, but you know what? And then I said, what? And he said, I bet you're never going to achieve what you think 
maybe you can achieve as a speaker guy until that becomes your sole focus. I said, whoa, whoa, what, what are you telling me, Dave? My most successful friend, what are you, what are you telling me? Uh, I'm a tenured professor. I have two kids in elementary school. I have a job for life. They can't take it from me. You're telling me I should leave that, give that up and take a risk as a full-time traditional entrepreneur with a small business, speaking, writing, training, so on. He said, yeah, I'm not saying go do it. You got to make that decision. But I bet if you don't do that, then you're never going to know what you could truly be because you can't divide your focus and actually expect it to grow the way it maybe could grow. This was the most brutal advice I'd ever heard. And since then, this is, this is, this is 20 years, no, almost 20 years ago. Uh, I now know this is somewhat common advice that's been given to many entrepreneurs who are thinking about getting dedicated as entrepreneurs. I needed to hear that. And I ended up shocking everyone, long story short, when I quit a tenured for, for life job and went without a paycheck and moved to a new city and started trying to earn a living only doing the speaking, writing courses, entrepreneur thing. It was some of the most brutal advice I have ever received and it was correct. So when I think about pivotal moments, I think about the encouragement and support, the belief my mom gave me in that conversation. And I think about one of my favorite people and mentors, a guy named Dave, his name's Dave Gasper. And, and he put truth to me like a good mentor or friend will, even when you don't want to hear it, that some of the best things you'll ever hear are the most difficult to hear. And that one for me is my favorite example. Yeah, I've uh, interviewed a sales coach, an award-winning CEO also, uh, who's a mentor as well. And uh, he talks about mentors uh, changing your own view of yourself, which is what that example, I think, describes. Absolutely. Uh, your authenticity comes across through all every through all your uh, courses, through your speaking uh, lectures that I've I've heard you do. Do you think that those people who are authentic are also the most trustworthy and the happiest at work in different mm -hmm. organizations that you've observed? Great so question, and the answer is no. There is not a simple answer to that. Uh, people who want to be authentic wish it were that true. It's not. Trustworthiness comes from a variety of things. One might be uh, being perceived as trustworthy. One might be being authentic and real in some positive sense, because uh, authentic and real can be negative too. Authentic and real in a positive yes, sense. I agree. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, but then there's the performance thing. Do you keep your word? Do you work hard? Do you thus perform? Back to those fundamental universal things about adding value that we have to do in any given context. So. Does authenticity help or hurt? Depends. Are you working hard and achieving results? If the answer is yes, authenticity makes you look like a person they can't wait to tell others about. If you're underperforming based on whatever performance is in that context, it, authenticity looks like you're a loud person who gets on other people's nerves. So it depends on what's valued in a given context and how well you perform. What's valued and how well you perform. I, I have an anecdote. I mean, when I was in a pharmacy school, uh, I was uh, getting some hours practicing uh, in working in a pharmacy, right? Before I would embark into a, a career in the pharmaceutical industry. But I was uh, the kind of person that I just never felt like I needed to show that I was busy. I, you know, busy to me was not a badge of honor. Yet I wanted to do the work. I wanted to do it with a quality, right? And so I had, I had uh, one uh, manager who just didn't really couldn't stand that, you know, when somebody was walking around with their hands in their pockets and kind of like talking about life, you know, even though we weren't busy as a pharmacy in that moment, what I, what I ended up doing was I, I wanted to test her a little bit to share not just words, 
and not just data with her, but to share some emotions, the better relationship. So I, the next phone call that I received, I acted as if it was a nurse calling in a script, uh, continued the conversation over the phone, just as she was nearby, you know, just being lighthearted, created some humor, right? In the, in the workplace at, at the end, she, she actually fell for it. But then you know, I broke her to the news that there's no, no script, nothing urgent. She actually started to smoke. She had never smoked before, but she went out and she took a smoke for the first time. The reason why I'm telling that story is that I find original thinkers and people who change the status quo, who are were kind of effortless at work, sure. are the, the, the ones that are probably able to uh, be genuine. But then I also, sure. I, I think there is that question that many people are confused by many different coaches, right? And le- leaders out there uh, who, who, you know, there's some who tell them, look, don't worry about what other people tell you, right? Just do what you have, to, just be yourself. Then there's others, craft your message to the audience. I've um, given you both. Others, yeah. I've given you both. Start by understanding the audience and give them what they need to earn the right to be fully you. But what I often say is that they need to first study themselves and whether or not they're valuable to others as well. I mean, every situation is different. Every uh, context is different. I couldn't possibly agree more. Let me take one part of what you said and, and yeah. riff on it for just a second. You know, you say people have to start with themselves. What do I really know myself? Can I engage anything that we've been talking about if I don't really understand myself? Most right. people don't. For example, uh, they think they do, but they've never been asked to. That's a a, a real shortcoming of the educational system as far as I'm concerned. The idea of self-reflection and thinking deeply about what I think, how I feel, emotional management, emotional intelligence, thinking about what I value and how that plays into decision-making, thinking about how to approach decisions. These are basic positive human thinking things that we should care a lot about. And we invest that much in them in terms of trying to educate people to engage them successfully. So for better or for worse, it gives people like me an opportunity. So I meet a hardworking person who's a younger professional and they read a book, they watch a course, they want to send me a note on LinkedIn, whatever it might be. Part of that conversation I give them in trying to answer their questions is, okay, before we answer those questions, let's back up and tell me what you know about yourself. What is it that's going to make you happy? What do you hate? What do you love? What are you good at? What are you bad at? What do you value? What you don't value? And what they, what, what almost always happens is they go, you know, I clearly haven't spent enough time thinking about those basic me questions, which really colors how I approach decision-making as a professional. So step one is always more self-reflection, more self-understanding. I used to do an activity back uh, before I became this guy. I was a little more of a trainer and a speaker. Today, I'm more of a speaker, writer, and very little else uh, except the the courses. Anyhow, um, there was an activity I did with a lot of people for a lot of years. It's still great. And I would ask people in an audience, hey, do you know what you value? in life. You could value anything. People value, you know, puppies, God, baseball, all kinds of stuff. Right. What do you value? And they'll be almost indignant. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Raise your hands if you know what you value. Yeah. And then I would go, great. Everyone in front of you, there's a piece of paper and a pencil with no, there's no right answer here, but in order of most important to least important, give me the five things you value most go. Now I ask you, what do you think I would observe when I walk around and watch them do that? Uh, they would probably have have some troubles, hesitation. 
probably more trouble than you would imagine. Yeah, there was right? a few people that were like, I've got this. Boom. Most people hesitate. They look at their neighbor, all kinds of hilarious things. Yeah. And they just get kind of sweaty. Like I, I, I gotta, I've got to make a decision now and articulate exactly what I think and what I stand for and what might matter to me. And it seems foreign to them. And that is a beautiful thing for them, even if it's painful to recognize. And, and I think that's true for so many otherwise productive, good people out there. They've not been asked to meaningfully do that type of introspection and it will help them tremendously. Those kinds of people are ones that I have very clear in my picture of right now in my mind because you know throughout my career and life I've attended a lot of leadership courses but and I've always with met without fail at least one person who probably took a long time or didn't take that course seriously or kind of asked look uh, I'm not a leader uh, not everybody's a leader but I personally I'm I feel that I was always energized by people like you people like you who energized me and that's why I'm trying to give that energy back within my, sure. en within my uh, function. Well, you're uh, right, by the way, you're right, by the way, it's not like there's 10 leaders over there and a few million who aren't. Everybody's a leader. Our example matters and has influence on people. We better recognize that at some level, we're, we're all leaders. That's not a cliche. It's true. Right. It's not a cliche. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. I agree. So Todd, I want to ask you a scenario, let's say, right. Uh, you have an independent thinker who enters an organization and they all of a sudden they start, they start to, behave out of character, uh, not in a way that is, 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 let's say, embraced by that uh, culture of that company. Yet they're trying to be valuable, but they, they're, be, they're not bringing themselves, their genuine selves to, to that corporation. What are some reasons for that based on your research? And what are, is some advice that you have? Well, uh, one of my favorite topics that I've written about over time is authenticity, which is basically what you're asking about. And, and there is a cost to uh, being authentic. There's a cost to not being authentic. So where's the average in my observation, uh, having seen a lot of people at work in a lot of organizations? And the answer is we err a lot on being inauthentic. That is to say, attempting to act explicitly to act which by the way is a sign of social intelligence. It means that you understand the norms and expectations around you and you're trying to meet them. That is a reasonable thing to do and a functional useful thing to do. My observation in the science backs this up big time is that on average, we do that, care about that way too much to the point that we're not really bringing the full self, our authentic self, the real self to work. We're actually just giving a part of ourselves, a heavily filtered, heavily censored version of ourselves. We're engaging in minimal transactions instead of emotional, useful relationships, etc. So when you see a person who gets authenticity or who by personality can't hide and act very well, has no interest in it, they have great trouble in organizational life. You're talking to one of them. I wasn't good at censoring and filtering like a smart person is supposed to, even though I was smart in other ways. Uh, it's just not something I was good at and there's a cost to that. So what I would expect for any hardworking, intelligent person who's not good at playing the game, at, at managing impressions, I expect them to ruffle feathers and unless they are highly connected, which for better or for worse matters, 
unless they're highly connected or extremely good at what they do and their value cannot be denied and their eccentricities must be tolerated, they will face challenges big time and very often it will limit their growth. And to me, if you start receiving signs over a year or two with an organization, not over a decade, but just a year or two, signs that being you is hurting more than helping. You got passed over for the promotion more than most of your peers. You didn't get the cool projects that you right. wanted that others got. It's a, if that evidence is piling up, the yep. employee evaluation was more difficult than you thought it should have been because they cared about things you didn't think mattered, et cetera, et cetera. That's not an indication that you are doomed or somehow flawed. It is better explained as you are not in the right role, the right organization, possibly the right industry, possibly the right vocation. It's a fit issue for you. If you're in the right place, now no one finds a perfect fit, even me. I love what I do and I've got very high fit, but it's not perfect. There's still things I have to do I don't love. That's normal. But if you have to fight and feel angst and feel unfulfilled and feel like you're acting and stressed all the time, you're not in the right place is a far better explanation than you're flawed and should change who you are. And you have to create your own momentum, I think. You know, one point that I make on my show, by the way, since this is the first time you're on my show and you're welcome to come back many times again, Todd, is that I lately make it a point not to introduce my podcast in the same way, like a broken record or not to hire someone's great voice, for example. No, no offense to those. The, those are professional. Those are great. But what I'm doing is I'm finding different ways to introduce and describe my podcast. Uh, and that is a segue to the next question, which, I, which is that course. And you know, I was going to ask you this question about how to pitch yourself. Like if, if there is, uh, you gave some great advice in that course that I took. And I would love for you to maybe summarize it to some of those uh, leaders that are listening to this course. How do they pitch themselves? Sure. Well, there's others. no perfect answer to that for sure. There's lots of opinions out there. Right. Uh, I, I think there's some rules that really matter. Less is more, non-technical instead of technical is more. When someone says, especially to a younger professional, hey, what are you up to? Uh, try and be simple to the point and have a tiny reflection of the past of where you are and where you want to go. So I, I framed it kind of that way in the course, yeah. a tiny reflection, tiny, and I keep saying tiny and brief and fast because you're not supposed to answer the question, hey, nice to meet you, what do you do with right. a 10 minute response? That's insane. Right. You're supposed to have a 10 or 30 second response and that's plenty if you thought it out. And part of the course was just trying to tell everyone watching, hey guys, Think about this proactively and practice this and you can be ready for your 10 second or your 20 second, your 30s, your short response instead of the multi-minute response, which will make everyone uncomfortable around you. So the short answer is to say, you know, well, I've been in pharmaceuticals for 10 years now, first in sales, now in management, and I'm really enjoying growing in the sales management side of pharmaceuticals, especially on the, in the name of technical area where you've gotten some real progress or real interest in the, fu in the future. There's 10 seconds of great information that explained where you were, where you are, where you're aspiring to, and it didn't take any excess amount of time. So some 
some, I hate to frame things too simply, but some yeah. small amount just like that is exactly where people should start with a pitch or a response to a question like that. And then most people are going to be so happy that you were concise and focused and brief. They're going to inquire a little bit about something you said. And now you've got round two where you can go even further, but never let yourself go into that multi-minute answer. It's always brief. And I'll give you another tip. <clears throat> it's not just brief that's so beautiful and appreciated and understood by people, but go ahead and after they show a little interest, if you're lucky and they do, ask them about themselves because the number one way to get someone, I hate to say, I don't want to sound like I'm manipulating at all. I'm just being honest about relationships. Yeah. If you want to build rapport, genuine interest in them, a question about them, an inquiry about what makes them tick where they are, where they're going is probably the biggest way to, in turn, generate interest in from them in you. It's about reciprocating, not about you dictating. Yeah, thank you. Where you are and where you're going is what I took away from that course. And so in terms of relationships, sure. what are some personal stories that you are willing to share with us in which you were able to turn some relationships around or transform some relationships um, well, probably. Um, how did you do that? I mean, I, as a coach, as a speaker, coach guy, I have many, many examples of that. You know, uh, I could tell you stories about coming off stage. I've been in front of many, many hundreds of thousands of people. And you come off stage and someone grabs you and says, you know what? I haven't talked to my son for a year because he got two tattoos. And I thought that was an abomination and would ruin his career. And I'm watching you today. And I even forgot that you had tattoos because I was just into the message. And now I realize it doesn't matter that substance and character are a different thing and the packaging really doesn't matter when the substance and character is there. I can't wait to go call my son and tell him I finally figured that out. I've heard a million versions of that. Uh, and it makes me makes me happy. But probably the best answer to your question involves my dad. And as I mentioned, my parents are both gone. But man, they taught me a ton. And I've written about it in, in several books. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad was a pretty serious alcoholic for most of his life. And he quit. And one of the reasons I'm a person who helps people understand, hey, change improvement, if not flat out transformation, is not a joke. It's not a trite uh, cliche. It's a real possibility if you're serious about it. One of the reasons I can do that, mean it, and help people with it is because my dad lived it. And he was the first shining example of someone I watched do it because he went from being a troublesome person, to say the least, uh, who I didn't like growing up, who I didn't want to be, who no one enjoyed because he was just lost in a bottle and unpleasant to be around, long story short. And then because of family pressure, but mostly because of his own realization and a boss who yelled at him a lot and, and sent him to rehab and helped him look in the mirror. He, was, he had a boss who kind of was the, uh, the last straw that made him admit what he was. And once he did the ridiculously painful thing of admitting what he was, no excuses, no blame. That was too easy for too long. No excuses, no blame. Here's what I am. I'm an underachieving alcoholic who has allowed this to persist for too long in the bad majority of the explanation and blame goes to me. Once he was able to do that, thanks to different pressures, especially that boss, uh, he found the, the wisdom to let go, to admit that, and to go to rehab. And the guy that came out of rehab was funny and smart and kind and productive in ways I did not think possible. And a person I really actively disliked my whole life, became my best friend for the next 12 years of his life until cancer unfortunately got him. But he lived a beautiful 12 years of showing people all kinds of value-added positivity 
People loved this guy, couldn't wait to talk to him because he finally got that monkey off his back. And it started with him owning his situation, being vulnerable enough, big enough to admit it. And that starts the change process. He showed me that was true and he became a different person. And I've been fascinated with helping others find their version of it ever since. Yeah. One of the most gifted individuals, performers, performers in my industry is somebody who came from a family who had a problem with alcoholism and him as well. But he's somebody who's recognized who was 15 years older than I was and who I consider my personal mentor uh, based on what he did, what he did at work and the, the character that he had. So uh, I, I relate. I relate to, to, uh, to a lot of what you're saying. Todd, I have a few questions as we wrap up. Um, there's a couple of m- most important questions that I have in my mind. And number, the first one is, what are some of the biggest problems you're asked to solve? Besides, of course, you speaking and you teaching, but from organizations or from people, what, what are you busy with most and why um, lately? So there's lots of answers to that, and I'm happy to say. Probably the biggest, uh, and it does relate to my book, which is coming out in a few weeks, called The Part, uh, involves creativity, innovation, and change, these very tightly interwoven ideas. So I hear all the time, you know what? Uh, you're preaching for having your eyes open and creativity and improvement, whether it's process, product, uh, uh, whether it's services, whether it's technology, business models, different targets for innovation. Um, I see possibilities. I think everyone does, but then it's so difficult to talk about them without getting negativity and evaluative uh, comments and critical comments that aren't helpful and, and bureaucracies and agendas and every imaginable, you know, everything you can imagine that will block you from making change. And the, I, I say, yes, uh, you're right. So the question is, can you be a voice people want to listen to? Can you have enough social capital from your performance for people to uh, know that they have to listen to you? Can you build a coalition of people through relationship skills that help you bring a bunch of people to an issue, not just yourself to an issue? Do you know how to align what it is you're trying to do with other goals and agendas and strategic plans, et cetera? So there's a bunch of thoughtful, systematic things change agents or aspiring change agents really need to do beyond just seeing opportunity to improve if they want the opportunity to actually make change. I think that's probably one of the most recurring, hey, hey, how do I deal with crazy people? Hey, how do I give negative feedback? Hey, how do I get that promotion? I get a lot of those. But the big juicy one that I think kind of defines success in a career comes back to that creativity, innovation, improvement area a lot for me. I see. I see. One thing, one question I do have to ask you, uh, because it's a personal interest, because of my background, and also because you have a PhD in organizational behavior, it has to do with company culture. And as you know, and I've talked to you about this before, I prefer the term cultural growth over time mm-hmm. to cultural fit. But when I've led company culture initiatives, company-wide initiatives, uh, you know, the kinds of challenges I've uh, received are uh, the timing. Look, it's the status quo. Uh, look, our company is small. We're not a big company, so we don't need a comp- culture initiative. Those kinds of like ch- challenges, right? Or it has to form organically. You don't need structure for company culture, right? So what is the ultimate ROI for organizations? If we take an organizational perspective on company sure. culture based on your research and your own personal perspectives, Todd. Sure. So I would say there is no ROI for cultural initiatives. What you That's a a thing that in certain financial areas is a very mathematically achievable result. 
And because that's true, people want an ROI in every other area of organizational life, which is a terribly difficult proposition that doesn't always work out mathematically or statistically very easily. So what I tell anyone who's interested in that around people-related issues, training, leadership development, culture initiatives, et cetera, uh, I say, well, you know what? You don't have an ROI formula that's going to impress me, so don't look for one. But what you do have, what you do have are metrics that indicate success. So for culture, there's some top line common answers that clearly should be in the conversation if you want to talk about whether or not a cultural initiative 12 months, 24 months, 36 months later is really working. So uh, what's productivity look like? What's uh, revenue growth uh, profit look like? What does turnover absenteeism look like, right? What does the average tenure look like? Uh, have we raised and maintained real standards while still seeing longevity uh, uh, hold out? No one's leaving. That's amazing. Uh, if you can show me that we have real standards and that we attract top, we have no talent. We have market average wages. Why? We don't have to pay the top dollar. And we still attract people because culture is exactly where it should be. Open, interesting, progressive, full of opportunities. People's voices are heard. Employees are valued, etc. When you have a positive culture that does those things, you will see it in terms of talent attraction, in terms of productivity. And frankly, when you ask a team, guys, I've got an idea, would you go with me? No one looks at you and says, I'm not going with you. It's not in my job, sir, in my uh, my job description. That's what someone in a crappy culture will say to you. You're in a positive, productive, progressive culture. They're going to say, that's interesting. How can I help? Even if it takes extra time for me for which I'm not directly paid. So you'll see indicators. I just mentioned 20, some formal, some informal that tell you cultural initiatives are working, but it's not going to come in the form of a classic ROI. Thank you, Todd. Are there uh, particular examples that you want to mention very quickly of uh, successful progressive company cultures you've seen recently? Well, I've seen many, for example, on the compensation issue. People come at me and I go, well, you know, how's, you know, retention and and your ability to attract talent and turnover? What's that look like? And they go, well, I mean, it's pretty good. And we're industry uh, competitive. and, And I think the reason we're competitive on on retention, for example, is because our wages are in the 90th percentile, 95th percentile in the industry. And they're proud of that. And I always say the same thing. Did you know you do not have to pay the top wage? I mean, better than 50 cent, 50% would be great, uh, but you don't have to be at 95. I mean, 60 and up to 85, somewhere in there, if the culture was right, absolutely would be sufficient. And they look at me like, are you crazy? I'm like, no, because what we find about people who leave organizations, the number one reason they voluntarily leave organizations, which is the the right of the privileged few who are talented and have mobility in a market, right? The number one reason they voluntarily leave is because of bad boss relationships and no belief in the culture, the purpose, the higher goals, the opportunities, things which really do start to sound a little bit like culture. So if you if you want to believe in culture, you don't have to pay the best. You have to act every day the best. You don't have to espouse the right values. This is great culture. Are you ready? It's the difference between espousing great ideals that you put on your website, your shareholder report, and something you blast out on email versus actually living them every day. Because when the average manager is a person trying to do their job and help you survive and thrive, not just to yell at you, but to help you survive and grow and thrive, When the average manager is that type of person, that is indicative of an amazing culture that values people as much as 
profit. And when that's the case, I, I got to tell you, I see it all the time on compensation and other things where they go, goodness is defined by market leading. No, no. You want market leading culture, but not necessarily market leading everything else. You don't have to have the strongest, most expensive, uh, expensive benefit package. You better be above average if you care about your people for sure. But you don't have to have the best, the most un, you know, mind-blowing expenditures. No, you have to have relationships, managers who have relationships that are the best. And when that's true, your culture is strong, positive, and progressive, and people will accept good, not great compensation. I'm not trying to advocate for low comp at all. I'm saying you don't have to go broke trying to beat everyone in the industry if you're a great place to work. Thank you, Todd. Uh, I think you've inspired us all to believe that we can be ourselves, we can be genuine, can create our own momentum, regardless of what company we work in. We can uh, uh, reinvent ourselves throughout our life and career and still be successful. So I really appreciate your time, Todd. And usually at the end of my show, I ask my guests if they have a message. Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate you asking. Uh, the message would be simple. Uh, choose to believe the truth, which is that more is always possible. More is always possible of you, of your team, of your career, of your organization. I believe that's true. And the more you focus on it, the more you will make that come to life. I believe that. Anyone interested in me can, of course, connect on LinkedIn or just go to my home on the internet at www.drdoit.com. Thank you, Todd, very much. Uh, I look forward to reading your book, Live Hard, and uh, more of your courses, your lectures uh, online, anywhere I can catch them. Thank you so much for being a guest. And you're invited always on All Out Coach, Todd. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you.